News, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium. Welcome aboard. Beautiful Labor Day weekend uh, out there. And uh, we've got some interesting stuff lined up for you. In studio with me are my colleagues, Jonathan Jerry, uh, Ada McVean, and Emily Shore. And uh, before we go any further and get into discussions about uh, things that you can put into your ear to make you feel better, and uh, chocolates and dogs, and our upcoming Trache Public Science Symposium, a little bit about uh, aerosol glass cleaners. There's one that I came across, and it declares on the label, no CFCs. Well, that's sort of a deceptive term. And there's an expression that we use for such deceptive terms, and that is greenwashing. Well, why is this no CFC claim on the label deceptive advertising? Why is it greenwashing? Well, greenwashing basically is a term that's used to describe the promotion of a product Uh, based on misleading claims that somehow it is superior to other products in terms of either environmental impact or safety. In this particular case, the deception is the implication that this glass cleaner contains no CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, while others do. With an international treaty known as the Montreal Protocol that was signed right here in Montreal in 1987, countries around the world agreed to phase out chlorofluorocarbons. And that phase-out was successful. And none of these chemicals have been used in household products for about the last 30 years. So what was the issue? The issue was that these chlorofluorocarbons that were at that time used in refrigerators and air conditioners and in various spray products, they were migrating into the upper atmosphere and they were destroying the ozone layer. The ozone layer, of course, is critical for filtering out some of the damaging ultraviolet rays that come from the sun. And uh, these chlorofluorocarbons were ideal propellants in spray cans because they were not flammable and they did not react with the ingredients inside. And that's what you want. You want some sort of inert propellant. Uh, Basically, chlorofluorocarbons are gases that can be compressed under pressure into a liquid So you put this liquid into a spray can, and when you open it to the atmosphere, of course, you lower the pressure, the chlorofluorocarbons uh, come out, and they bring out with them the other ingredients. Well, today, in spray cans, uh, CFCs have been replaced by butane, and those certainly do not harm the ozone layer, but they have their own downside, and that is flammability. Anyway, the fact is that no spray products today use chlorofluorocarbons, so that the no CFC claim is actually correct, but it is a form of greenwashing because it implies that the product is more environmentally friendly than those of its competitors, but none of the competitors contain CFCs. There are many, many examples of this uh, in the food world. For example, you will have some um, oils that will declare no cholesterol, vegetable oils which, of course, is a correct claim. But cholesterol is found only in animal products. So there are no vegetable oils out there that contain um, cholesterol. Another example of greenwashing is the claim that products that are formulated with plant-based chemicals are somehow safer to use 
than those that contain synthetics. There are several issues here. First is the bogus notion that natural substances are inherently safer. That, of course, is nonsense. You would not want to roll around in a patch of poison ivy or stinging nettle, and the pollen that is causing your allergic miseries right now, because this is the time of year that there are a lot of pollen, that, of course, comes from plants. Then there is the issue that the so-called plant-derived ingredients uh, are somehow better or safer than anything else. Well, here's the truth. Those plant-derived ingredients undergo extensive chemical manipulation before they take on their final form. Let's consider an all-purpose cleaning agent sold by 7th Generation, a company that sells cleaning products that, quote, use plant-based cleaning ingredients to get the job done so you can feel good about using them in your home and around your family. The name of the company derives from the Iroquois philosophy that the decision we make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. That's an admirable goal. And uh, I, I really don't have very much against seven generation. They're a pretty good company. Uh, I like the fact that they list all of their ingredients, uh, and uh, that's not uh, uh, necessary by law, but they do it, which is, which is a good thing. But anyway, let, let me give you an example. The plant-derived detergents in this cleaning agent are caprile glucoside and loreth-6. These compounds are not found in plants, but the raw materials from which they are made are. Loreth-6 is a detergent that is used in numerous products. It is synthesized from laurel alcohol, which is produced industrially from palm kernel oil or coconut oil. That's the plant-based connection. But in order to isolate the lower alcohol, that involves a number of chemical steps, starting with hydrogenation, and that will free the lower alcohol from triglycerides and the oils, and then there's extraction processes. So a lot of chemistry before you isolate that lower alcohol. And then that lower alcohol is reacted with ethylene oxide. That's a synthetic compound. And uh, when these two react, that's when you get this final product, the detergent, called Loreth-6. Calling that plant-based is really misleading. Then there is citric acid that is described as a plant-based pH adjuster. Yes, citric acid is found in plants, but is not the commercial source. It is made by adding a culture of the mold, Aspergillus niger, to a glucose medium that is derived from molasses or hydrolyzed cornstarch. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with using citric acid, but again, giving it this halo because it is, quote, plant-derived is disingenuous because, as I said, uh, it isn't really plant-derived except that some of the raw materials that are used do come from, from plants. Well, going by that philosophy, uh, one could um, also call a car natural, right? Because everything that a car is made of originally comes from nature. All of the iron, the aluminum, but everything, including the plastics. And where do plastics originally come from? Well, if they come from petroleum, isn't petroleum a natural product? It's the, the end stage of decomposition of animal and vegetable uh, matter. So there's a lot of, of uh, uh, playing around uh, in this area of, um, of greenwashing and the suggestion that if something comes from a natural source, it is necessarily better than something that is synthetic. And, of course, as I've uh, 
told you many, many times over the last 40 years, this is one of the biggest myths out there, that substances that are natural are somehow inherently preferable to uh, synthetic substances. Uh, the greenwashing uh, business is is very extensive because everyone is trying to, you know, sort of get uh, uh, one step ahead of the competition. So they are promoting products as being more environmentally friendly, healthier, etc. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the commercial products that are already out there. If you take a look at uh, things like window cleaners, well, those are, you know, the result of a great deal of research by by chemists with master's degrees and with PhDs degrees. And uh, they know what they're doing. And there's nothing wrong with, with those products, of course, when they're properly used. You don't go around trying to mix cleaning agents up at home because you can kill yourself. If you mix anything that has bleach with anything that has an acid in it, you'll be inhaling some chlorine fumes. Okay, we'll be back. We're going to talk about uh, some interesting stuff about chocolate and dogs, uh, of course, and auricular therapy. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, uh, as I said, uh, in studio with me, Jonathan uh, and Ada and Emily, my, my colleagues, we're going to talk about some interesting things that are happening. And you'll hear more about this in the future because Jonathan's going to write an article about it. Uh, but let's uh, just for a minute talk about uh, auricular therapy. Yeah, uh, specifically ear seeds, uh, which is something that I was I was alerted to uh, recently uh, listening to a podcast. So uh, there is this thing happening. Uh, you can see it on Instagram, for example, of people having these tiny little piercings on their ear, which kind of look like uh, constellations. And for some, it's a fashion statement, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but for others, there's there's there are health claims being made about these things. Uh, in the case of these piercings, you know, you would pierce very specific points in the ear. Uh, for others, they will use actual plant seeds that they will tape to the ear on those specific points. And you're supposed to be rubbing them multiple times a day. And what this is, is essentially it's a new form of ear acupuncture or ear acupressure. And the idea is that, uh, much like in reflexology, where every part of the body maps onto the sole of your feet, uh, you, every part of the human body somehow maps onto your ear. Now, this is not an old uh, Chinese modality. This was made up by a uh, French physician uh, in the 1950s, and uh, he thought that the ear looked like an inverted fetus. And so, depending on where you would stimulate this this little homunculus, uh, you would actually be able to heal the corresponding organ in the body. Uh, funnily enough, I, uh, there's a lot of research into ear acupuncture and ear acupressure, a lot of studies, a lot of studies of studies trying to figure out what is the best evidence that we have. And unfortunately, the thing that comes back again and again and again and again is that all of these studies are of low quality and at high risk for bias. So these are studies that have not been well done. They have too few participants. Uh, the participants know which group that they're in, either the real intervention or the sham intervention. The people giving the uh, acupressure or acupuncture themselves know in which group they are, all that kind of stuff. And so basically, even though if, you, if you're tempted to look online for evidence of this, you, you will find positive studies. But the quality of the, of the evidence is so low combined with a prior plausibility of it, like how likely is this that this is true, which is extremely low, uh, this is basically nothing more than a, a temporary placebo response. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, the plausibility is a very important point to bring up because we know quite a bit about anatomy and the nervous system. And there are not nerves connected to every little part of the ear that then connect to other parts of the body. No, I mean, I mean, there are, there are different nerves uh, that are uh, that are connected in these areas. But I mean, you know, if you can imagine a, a human ear, uh, there are over a hundred points there. So making sure that you're stimulating the exact one, the one point that you want to hit, and not the other one next to it. That, oh, that's a pancreas! Don't, don't touch the pancreas. I mean, just from that. That alone is is quite uh, quite quite of a, of a head scratch. Okay, let's let's get away from stimulating the ear. Let's stimulate the tongue. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I uh, subscribe to the Goop newsletter uh, because, of course, I must. Uh, Who doesn't? So Goop, Goop, of course, <laughs> is Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, health emporium uh, for questionable products. One of the products that they were advertising had an active ingredient called gymnema. So if you imagine gymnasium, it's spelled in a similar way. Uh, and gymnema is meant to curb your uh, sugar cravings. Now, this article was sponsored content. Uh, the maker of the of the, the, the pill itself uh, was basically sponsoring this content. And, uh, of course, because it came from Goop, uh, I was naturally skeptical. I mean, they do sell a psychic vampire repellent. Uh, Which works. <laughs> keeps the vampires away uh, but of course as, as any good skeptic would tell you it's, it's always a good idea to start with an open mind uh, and look at the evidence and uh, reading it uh, reading about this this compound uh, I mean gymnema is a plant and I'll, I'll get to it uh, it seemed as if it really did have this ability to cancel out the taste of sweetness so what is this? I mean, it's a it's a woody climbing plant called Gymnema sylvestre. Uh, you can find it in India, parts of East Asia, Africa, even Australia. Uh, it's it's known as a panacea. It's a cure all in Ayurvedic medicine, which is the traditional sort of folkloric medicine of India. For example, it can somehow treat asthma, but also snake bites. Uh, so it can, of course, because it's a plant, it contains a ton of molecules, including a class of molecule called gymnemic acids. And these are the molecules that bind on your tongue and they temporarily allow you not to taste sweetness. Last for about 30 to 60 minutes. So we ordered some. Uh, we all, everybody here tried it, right? And it did work. It's, it's super weird. The effect. It's a really weird taste. It feels like your tongue is not, I don't want to say numb, cause not numb, but you, like, you could almost sense that you're missing something. Right. Like certain taste buds are being inhibited in yeah. some way. Cookies taste like cardboard. Fruit exactly. ends up tasting very acidic. My coffee, which had Splenda in it, was off. Like, it just tasted mm-hmm. weird. And if you put straight sugar in your mouth, you just taste nothing. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. So, uh, so how is this supposed to work for weight loss? For example, the idea is that you take this with your meal. And then when you reach out for the pie, you take one bite and you go, you know what? No more for me. This is cardboard. I'm not going to eat this. And so therefore you would lose weight. Now, there are a few studies of gymnema and I looked into them and they all have issues. Uh, the sample size is very small. For example, it's about 27 to 44 people per group, which is quite small. There is also a potential for cultural bias. The first two studies were done in India. And of course, in India, people really believe that this thing actually works, that it's a cure-all. And there's a parallel to be drawn with acupuncture, which we were just, just discussing. 99.8% of trials of acupuncture coming out of China are positive, whereas those coming out from other countries are much more varied. And there's a potential for conflict of interest, which is that recent studies of Gymnema were funded by companies selling the product. There was even one study that was stopped prematurely because the funder said, hey, we like the results so far. You can stop recruiting. Um, there's a very good website called Practice-Based Evidence in Nutrition. They reviewed the evidence for Gymnema in 2015. They stated that for glucose control in adults with diabetes, 
the supplement is supported by limited evidence or expert opinion. So it's very tempting to use the following logic, right? Gymnema makes sugar taste like cardboard. Excess sugar consumption leads to weight gain. Therefore, taking Gymnema will for sure lead to weight loss. But we have to remind ourselves that the human body is not as simple as that. Uh, for example, we now know we know that low vitamin D levels are a risk factor for diabetes. So taking vitamin D supplements should reduce the risk of developing diabetes, right? Except that a recent trial did not show that. So that's why we need to test our hypotheses, even when they sound obviously true. Uh, there's one last thing that I want to mention. So Gymnema, it does temporarily block the taste of sweetness, but we don't know if it can truly help with weight loss, diabetes control. It is. It's an herb. It's a natural health product. What that means is that it's not regulated the same way as pharmaceutical drugs. What you buy could be adulterated. It could even be substituted. And last thing is that today I tried a different form of it. Uh, they come in these cellulose capsules, those transparent capsules, and it didn't work because the uh, the genetic acids, they have to touch your tongue. So if they are inside of a cellulose capsule, you swallow the whole thing, it will not have an impact. So I had to open up the capsules, put the stuff on my mouth. It was absolutely disgusting, uh, and then it <laughs> did work. Yeah, but interestingly enough, the original claim that, that it takes away the taste of sweetness was, was Verified. Correct. So sometimes, you know, we come across things that we're skeptical about, and then it turns out that there is some substance to that. Indeed. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be back and talk about chocolate and dogs. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, we've dealt with the ear, we've dealt with the tongue. Now we're going to go into the animal kingdom. Still well, tongues. the dog tongue. Yeah, yeah the still dog tongues. tongues. So your daughter has a dog who we thought ate chocolate. Turns out he actually ate grapes. But when we thought he ate chocolate, um, I went looking into why he didn't get so sick. Um, because it turns out there's a lot of dogs that eat chocolate. And pretty much any dog owner will tell you that chocolate is very toxic for dogs. You know to keep, you know, your Easter goodies out of the reach of your canine friends. But a lot of dogs can eat chocolate and be totally fine. So I was wondering what's what's up with that. And it I, think, kind of, I think the other ones are just faking it. Yeah, they're maybe just, they're, they want attention. Seekers. They really want some cuddles. <laughs> dogs are known to be attention seekers. Yeah. It's true. Um, so it turns out, just as with everything, the dose makes the poison. And specifically, the poison in this case is theobromine. It belongs to a group of chemicals called methylxanthanines. Um, it's the same class as caffeine. Um, although, So the caffeine content in chocolate is an issue, but the caffeine content in chocolate is very low compared to the theobromine content. So that's the part of chocolate that makes your dog sick. Um, but different types of chocolate have differing amounts of theobromine. So basically, the darker the chocolate... Um, the more theobromine. So the best chocolate, if your dog's going to eat some chocolate, is white chocolate, which has almost no theobromine. Um, even milk chocolate has it's very delicious. little. I hate white chocolate. So it's the opposite for humans. So white chocolate darker, isn't really chocolate. Right. I, white chocolate is just the, yeah, the, I don't care the what fat it is, from the cocoa. It's gross. Yeah. So basically the darker you get, the better it is for humans, but not for dogs. Yes. So the worst your dog can eat is baking chocolate, pure, unsweetened, the kind of stuff you buy uh, to make like fudge with. Um, that has such a high theobromine content that just a few grams could um, make even a large dog like a German Shepherd quite sick, whereas a German Shepherd could very likely eat several Kit Kats and not show any symptoms. But if you took a smaller dog, um, like a little Multipoo or a Chihuahua, if they ate even half a Kit Kat, they would likely show symptoms. So it becomes very variable in terms of what your dog eats, what, what they happen to get into, how much of it they eat, and how big they are. Uh, and then there's also potentially some genetic components. Um, certain dogs have genes that seem to uh, regulate how well they 
um, digest um, methylxanthines. So some dogs are basically worse at getting it out of their system, so they'll get sicker. Um, and there's also really interesting to me, um, cocoa bean shells have started to be used as an alternative to mulch. I guess people want their hmm. gardens to smell like chocolate. I don't, I don't see why that's a bad thing. Um, but there are cases, um, reported cases of dogs eating the mulch because it smells like food and dogs like to eat anything they can possibly eat. And they'll get quite sick because, um, in the shells of the cocoa beans, there is a very high theobromine content. So essentially, Nothing should change in how you treat chocolate and your dogs. Keep chocolate away from your dogs. But if your dog does eat chocolate or cocoa bean shells, there are some really good online calculators you can look at to see if um, you should be worried. And if your dog is showing any symptoms, take them to the vet, please. Dogs can 100% die from ingesting chocolate. But if they've just eaten, you know, maybe a little corner of a Kit Kat and they're a huge German Shepherd, you might be okay. So don't panic right off the bat. I wonder if it affects any other animals. Uh, cats. Cats are actually more susceptible to theobromine than dogs. Um, it's just that cats aren't, you know, dummies who eat anything they can possibly eat. And cats, cats don't, um, taste glucose. There's good evidence that cats don't taste glucose how we do and that proteins actually taste sweet to them, how sweet tastes to us. So gymnema would not work on a cat. It would not, no. But cats also just have no drive to eat chocolate because it doesn't taste sweet. And if all chocolate tasted like 99% chocolate to us, we probably wouldn't eat too much of it either. Right. Staying in the animal kingdom. Hummingbirds. They're animals, right? Hummingbirds are... Congrats. Yes, they are animals. They are animals. Okay. (laughs) Good job. And uh, so I had a question this week from a lady about uh, feeding hummingbirds. Now, I knew nothing about hummingbirds, but it's amazing how quickly you can become an expert uh, just by cruising the internet. Anyway, uh, apparently there are all kinds of discussion groups about hummingbirds uh, out there. And there are numerous people who uh, have various kind of hummingbird feeders, you know, on their balconies or in, in their backyards. And you can get these commercial nectars. Uh, I mean, hummingbirds, of course, are attracted to, to flowers. That's where they get their nectar. That's where they get their food. And they need a lot of food. They need a lot of energy. I mean, I was shocked to find out that the hummingbird flaps its... Uh, uh, wings 50 to 70 times a second oh. a second it's unbelievable i mean to try to flap your arms twice a second yeah. right <laughs> Emily, have you tried running that <laughs> way no, no, <laughs> 50 70 times a, a second it's, it's amazing so they need a lot of energy which they get from the uh, sugar in the in the nectar so these commercial nectars are are sold and it's just sugar solution i don't know why anyone would buy them Pay ten times as much as you know. You could just take a spoonful of sugar and dissolve it, but they're colored. Mm-hmm. And I think originally the idea was that the reason they're colored is to mimic uh, plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, this lady had talked about this on one of her discussion groups, and she got attacked from others that she was feeding the hummingbirds with uh, this concoction that had a synthetic dye in it. My mother-in-law was actually uh, asking me about this as well. She thought it might be bad for them and wanted me to look into it. So I'm glad you did for me. Well, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about it. And uh, it all comes back to the fact that they're using red dye number 40. And uh, then they dredge up all the stuff about red dye number 40 being fed in truckload amounts to, to rats and causing, you know, some sort of problem. And then, of course, they take that and extrapolate it to hummingbirds and say that you're killing the birds by doing the, the red dye. I can't find any real evidence that it is uh, it is harmful. Uh, but, but it's uh, a chemical, though, and chemicals a, are bad. Right? Yes, uh, chemicals are bad. We know that. Especially We've, when uh, they have a number, like 40 years. after yeah. us. Yeah. And um, 
it turns out though that the same manufacturer who sells the red uh, nectar now has come out with a colorless uh, solution. Is but, it GMO free though? Uh, I'm sure it is GMO free. But it I wonder GM- if the uh, I don't know if it's kosher. I wonder right. if the birds will be less attracted to it because they're naturally attracted to the colors of a flower, yeah. right? Yes. Well, that was the original argument why they they dyed it. But uh, the studies since then have shown that the only reason that the birds were attracted to the nectar that was colored is because they became trained to mm. go go for it. But uh, if you put the non-colored solution in there, they still get it. They learn where the food is and, and uh, well, they will come anyway. But couldn't you color yeah. the container Yeah, itself? I was going to say, you could just buy a red hummingbird feeder if you're really concerned. Well, there you go. Maybe there's a market for that. Okay, I'll, be, yeah. I'll get on yeah. it. <laughs> and you can maybe you can even patent it. Right? Okay. I okay. mean, uh, you can patent anything. Uh, you know, people think that that uh, patenting something um, has to be some new practical innovation. It doesn't. It just has to be a new idea, and, and it doesn't really ever have to be put into production. Are you saying that uh, my colored hummingbird feeder is not an innovation? Well, it might be. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But I, I was looking at <laughs> I was looking at one very interesting patent that was filed in the in the 1960s, and it was a baby catcher. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It 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 was to ease birth, and it was a it oh, was, yes. yes, it was this table onto which the the lady about to go into labor was strapped, and it was spun around Sent to eject force. the baby, and she would have a net in between her legs to catch the baby. Well, you wouldn't and, want it flying away. You wouldn't want it flying. Let away. me take a wild guess. And, a man designed this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, a man did design this, and there's no evidence that this was ever built. That's a shame. You should yeah. build it. Yeah, but it it was designed, and there's a patent for it. So there certainly could be a patent for uh, a, a, a colored, colored uh, bird uh, yeah. feeder. All right, we're going to take a break, and after that, we'll be back to tell you about our news. The uh, subject matter for our upcoming L'Entrache Public Science Symposium Montreal's premier annual event. (laughs) You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we are back. And as I told you, we're going to talk about uh, at least our premier event for this coming year, and that is the Trottier Public Science uh, Symposium. Uh, every year, we organize this and invite uh, renowned speakers to come and talk to the Montreal public and our students also as well about uh, some interesting areas in the world of science. And this year, we have uh, thought up, I think, a topic that is going to interest almost everyone because we all worry about aging, right? Do we? Yeah, we do. I mean, I'm yeah, only we do, we do, 23, we do. so not so much. Yeah. No, just you will. I'll get there. I'll you get, you there. Will. get there. You will. We worry about aging. Uh, you know, uh, nobody wants to get old and sick. Uh, we want to be healthy. So our theme this year is longing for longevity. Emily. This is actually our 10th symposium hosted by the McGill Office for Science and Society. We took it over 10 years ago. Um, so this is our 10th. So it makes sense, I guess, that we are doing this topic. Um, it's on October 22nd and 23rd. It's a Tuesday and a Wednesday. It is totally free, open to the public. 
no registration required. Our first, uh, our two speakers on the Tuesday, is, uh, they are Kelly Dobos, who is a cosmetic chemist. So I guess, Joe, she's going to be doing some of those anti-aging claims. and She sure will. She'll some of that. looking at the uh, creams that claim to remove wrinkles. Which, like you, which you said some there are. Yeah, there are some, some, some that do something. Yeah, uh, you might have to look with a magnifying glass to right. see the effect. But, yeah. but uh, nonetheless. Yeah, you know, there, this also brings up, you know, the idea that you can have statistical significance without having practical mm-hmm. significance. So, yes, you can have somewhat fewer wrinkles, right. but no one's going to notice it unless they're looking very, very Except close. for the person who has the wrinkles, maybe. Mm, maybe. And then uh, we also have David Sinclair, Dr. Sinclair from Harvard, and he does research on resveratrol and the brain, right? Yes. Uh, Sinclair is probably the world's uh, leading authority on this chemical that originally was uh, derived from red wine called resveratrol. But he has gone on uh, to study just aging in general. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he's going to have some very, very interesting uh, ideas about what we can do in order to try to slow down the aging process. Mm -hmm. And we all know that you can't get out of life alive. But uh, we can try. But uh, uh, hopefully, we can do something to slow down this horrific process. Oh, horrific! Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the next day, we have drum roll, please. Drum roll. We have Doctor Ruth Westheimer, who is talking about sex, um, which is something also that there will be live demonstrations on stage. I'm told. <laughs> For, yes, we are going to get members from the audience. Exactly. So, um, right. So, Doctor Ruth is coming to talk about sex after 50 and is there know, such a thing we'll have to hear from dr ruth I, you, tell, you tell us yeah. around the table <laughs> you're the one in that age bracket so um right but that is something that also is part of the aging process and living well and living healthy and i really look forward to meeting her she seems like a fascinating woman so she'll be the keynote on the she on the is I mean, and of course she on the wednesday a, I'm sorry. a very interesting personal history aside mm-hmm. from the, the fact that she was really the first person on radio to discuss yeah. uh, sex as... To make you know, it not uh, so yeah. taboo. Yeah. She's a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. And in 1948, she was in the Israeli army mm-hmm. during the War of Independence. And, I think uh, she was a sniper also. Was she? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine that she'd be good. She does a lot of sniping, yeah. <laughs> oral sniping <laughs> as, as well. So, yeah, she'll uh, tell us... Uh, about what to do in terms of sex uh, aging. So, again, it's uh, October 22 and 23. Mark that down in your calendar. And, of course, we'll be talking a little bit more about this as the event gets um, closer. Usual usual location downtown at the Centre Mont-Royal. Um, and keep updated you know, on our website. It will be doing lots of publicity for that. Yes. Uh, let's just refresh people's minds about our website. Miguel.ca slash OSS. Yes, and you can go there and sign up for our weekly digest, which is a newsletter. It will appear at exactly 6.00 a.m. on Saturday mornings in your, in your email box. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has uh, interesting and informative uh, items. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, whatever your social media of choice is. We're exactly. at McGill OSS on all of those platforms. Mm-hmm. Gee, we're everywhere, just like Gwyneth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Talking about Gwyneth. Uh, I wrote an article about um, essential oils in last week's uh, Gazette. And I was doing that, I was doing the research on that. I come across this item, which was promoted. 
Uh, essential oils are oils that are extracted from plants. They're not essential in, in the sense that, uh, you know, they need it by the plants. Or, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the essence of the plant. That's mm-hmm. what it is. But, of course, all kinds of health claims are made uh, for them. And um, come across this one suggested that the odor of pumpkin and the odor of lavender had an aphrodisiac effect. Oh, I can believe it. Those things smell good. Yes, eh? What does and, Dr. Ruth well, have to say about <laughs> well, that? Well, we'll have, to, we'll have to ask her. So anyway, I, you know, I, I read this article about the benefits of uh, uh, pumpkin odor and lavender odor. And wouldn't you know, as I'm cruising the internet, I come across a commercial item. What is it? Pumpkin and lavender odor. How's ah. it smell? Yes, I have not yet opened it. Uh, I'm not sure know. we should be doing this in the studio. Uh, yes, I. Well, uh, maybe why we will do a, a live experiment like? right I don't know here. Why? But I like it. Okay. okay go, here we it. go. Here's the lavender and pumpkin. Oh, me first. You okay. first. Yeah. Lady, oh, it's weird. Ladies, come first. It's a little weird. Where's, where's your fiance at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I really like it. It's like a mix of I really of like it. It's actually quite nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, I smell the I smell the pumpkin nice. more. Yeah. 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 Pumpkin and I want pumpkin pie. Here, Joe, sit, smell. I might go get a PSL after this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not I an unpleasant like smell. It. It's not an unpleasant smell. It's too bad we're on radio and we can't have people smelling this, right? Oh, remember that smellorama? I you was probably too don't. Young. Yeah, you. I, I yeah. remember that. Yeah. I remember going to the the old uh, uh, Cinerama Theater here in Montreal, okay. which was on on Park Avenue. The building is still there, but it's it's no longer a cinema. It was um, <clears throat> one of these uh, 180 degree screens. It oh, was wow. really, really quite neat, and there was a movie, uh, uh, Smellorama, they called it, and there was you know there'd be some sort of scene on on the screen that had something to do with smells uh-huh. and they would pump the smell into the in the theater hmm. and then of course you'd have people coughing and I was say that and, now would yeah. be a whole allergy, <laughs> yeah, allergy yeah, I, thing. I don't think that, uh, they did it, that it would work now they did that for a movie when I was a kid Spy Kids 4D they projected oh, it in yes. 3D like really early 3D movies and then they also had like scratch and sniff cards you got when you went to the mm-hmm. theater oh yeah, yeah i still smell the pumpkin and yes the lavender. i still smell it the too. whole studio and are you like are a, you excited it smell like a pie I'm getting there yeah. I don't, i'm more hungry <laughs> yeah. you heard it first she's getting there All right. so you heard it here first right is here it is pumpkin and lavender <clears throat> essential oil <clears throat> oh, what's smells that nice like? smells nice and we'll see whether or not it has any sort of an, an effect okay <laughs> Well, there it is. We are once again out of time, but you learned something about uh, uh, about something, yeah, about dogs and chocolate, and and about uh, chemistry of the ear or non-chemistry of the ear, and uh, taste buds, taste buds, and also most important aphrodisiacs and our upcoming. Lauren Chartier Public Science Symposium, October twenty-two and October twenty-third. We're going to look at longevity and how we long for it. Well, that's it. We've got to sign off here. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Till then, I'm George Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>